0: Welcome to C3 Hobart Online. We hope that you enjoy this message today. If you'd like to get in touch with us, make sure that you listen till the end to find out how. How are we? Good. we're good. Turn to the person next to you and say, I'm ready. Turn to the person on the other side and say, brace yourself. (laughs) For those of you who don't know me, my name is Kelly Dunn. And I am married to Aaron, and together we have four children. And we moved here about 10 years ago from a sleepy little town that you may have heard of called Sydney. Do we have any prior Sydney ciders in the house? I'm always surprised by how many people I talk to in this church that have spent a bit of time in Sydney before. So one of my earliest memories as a child is actually from when I was about four or so years old and we were shopping in a suburb of Sydney called Cabramatta. And I remember we were in a shop, and all of a sudden I looked up, and I couldn't see my family. I couldn't see my parents. And so I went outside of the shop, and I looked on the street, and when I couldn't find them, I started to go into some nearby shops thinking that they'd just gone ahead of me, and I'd be able to catch up with them. But it soon dawned on me after a few minutes of not being able to find them that I was actually lost. And so here I was, this four-year-old girl on a very busy street in Sydney where I knew absolutely nobody. And the thing about this particular suburb is that not many people on that street even spoke the same language as me. And a real sense of worry started to rise up within me but I remembered this conversation that my family had had before that if we ever got lost we were to go back to the place where we last remember having everyone together and we're just to stand there and wait and someone would come and find us and so I went back to that original shop and I stood there and I waited and I waited and I waited and Nobody came to get me and a real wave of panic overwhelmed me and against what my parents had advised me to do, I started running up and down that main street like an absolute lunatic. I started darting in and out of the shops, searching frantically for my parents. I remember crossing the road as a four-year-old girl and searching the other side of the street and going a bit around the block and going upstairs. I was searching everywhere for them. And after about 15 minutes of doing this to absolutely no avail, I was absolutely hysterical. I remember I'd been crying my throat hurt from screaming for my parents so much, and I had almost lost hope that I would never find them. And as I was running, a hand reached out and grabbed my arm and asked me if I was okay. (laughs) I clearly wasn't. (laughs) And I looked up into the face of this stranger, and I told her that I'd lost my parents. And she told me that she worked in the chemist across the road, And if I went with her, she would help me to find my parents. But at this stage, I was actually faced with a real dilemma. Because I grew up in a family where we really didn't have any rules growing up. But my father had this one rule. He was very firm on it. And it was that we were never to go anywhere with a stranger or a friend unless he had given us permission to do so. Yet here I was, this four-year-old girl, completely lost, completely unable to find my parents. And I knew I needed to enlist the help of somebody else. But to do that, I was going to have to break my father's rule. And so I decided I was going to take the risk because that's me, the real risk taker. (laughs) If anyone knows me, that is not me at all. I'm not a mistake. But I I enlisted her help and true to her word, she took me to the chemist. She settled me down with a lollipop, with some sugar. And so now they've settled down this hysterical child, right? So someone said, now we've got to go out and find ourselves some hysterical parents. So someone went out onto the street and it didn't take them very long to find my parents who were absolutely beside themselves. And I remember as they came into the the chemist and I first saw them, I was so relieved. I was so relieved because they would finally found me. We were back together again. But I also remember registering this feeling of apprehension because I was scared, first of all, that I was going to get in trouble for getting lost in the first place. But mainly, I was afraid that my father would be upset or disappointed with me having broken his one rule. I thought that maybe I'd made things worse. And so as my parents came up to me, I was trying to work out in my mind how I was going to explain what I did. But before I said anything, I looked up into their faces and they'd clearly both been crying. And then my father, without saying, giving me a lecture, without reprimanding me, Without giving me a list of all the things that I had done wrong in that situation, he wrapped his arms around me and he said, Thank goodness we found you. Church, I've been thinking a lot lately about fathers, I've been thinking a lot lately about my father. I've been thinking a lot lately about other people's experiences of father, whether they be good experiences or bad experiences, and I've been thinking a lot lately about what does the Bible actually have to say about fathers? And the thing is is that the Bible presents God to us through the use of many different personal images. It presents God to us as a potter, as a creator, it presents God to us as a, as a husband, as a shepherd, and it also presents God to us as a father. And of all the ways that Jesus related to God, the way he related most to God was to you through this concept of God as father. In fact, in the Gospel of John alone, Jesus calls God father over 100 times. And he refers to himself as the son of God 30 times. And I believe that there's something in that. I believe that God wants us today to explore this concept of Him as Father. Are you with me? Uh, Three people are. Let's do it again. Are you with me? Okay, turn to the person next to you and say, this is going to be better than I thought. (laughs) We're going to pray. God, I thank you for your Word. Lord, it's good seed for us. It is truth. It is a sure foundation. God, this morning we pray that you would take the veil off our eyes, that you would help us to see, Lord God, to see ourselves, to see our situation, but mainly, Lord God, that you would help us to see you and you as Father. In Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Guys, I'm going to share from the passage today. That is going to be very familiar to a lot of people. In fact, it is a passage that I myself have preached from before. And I suppose my hesitation in sharing from such a passage is that sometimes I know I can have a tendency to switch off a little bit with really familiar passages. Am I the only person? I'm preaching to myself. Sometimes I have a tendency to switch off. I can think I've been there, I've done that, I've got the T-shirt. But I want to encourage you to hang in because I believe that God's got some new, fresh things for us today, things that you are never going to be able to unsee again when you read this passage. And the passage is Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 31. But before we even get there, I want to set the table for us. Because at the start of Luke 15, it says that Jesus is teaching a mixed crowd of people. There are a bunch of very religious people there. People who are Pharisees, people who are Sadducees, people who are temple leaders, people that have literally memorized the first five books of the Bible off by heart. Really quite impressive people. But then also within the crowd are a bunch of sinners. Not my words. This is what the Bible says, just sinners. So we've got a mixed crowd of people. And Jesus is teaching this mixed crowd of people about the kingdom of heaven, particularly about the heart of God. And to do so, he tells them a series of three stories about lost things. He tells them the story of a lost shepherd. Not a lost shepherd, a lost sheep. Then he goes on and tells them the story of a lost coin. And finally, he tells them the story of a, well, what the, our Bibles often have titled, the story of the lost son. But I take issue with that title. And I take issue with that title because this is how Jesus begins the parable. He says, There was a certain man who had two sons. Somebody say two, say it like you mean it. Two. Two sons. And the younger son said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. Give me my inheritance. Show me the money. And the father divided unto them. Sorry, who did he divide it unto? Amen. Divided it unto them. The younger son and the older son. His livelihood. Now, I always find it interesting the way that's translated into our English Bibles, the father divided unto them his livelihood. Because if you go back to the Greek, original Greek, which this was originally penned in, it reads much more like the father gave them his life. And so here you have a younger son who's asking for an inheritance. And in response, you have a father who doesn't just give them an inheritance, who doesn't just give property, who doesn't just give goods, who doesn't just give money, but pours out onto both of them his hopes, his dreams, his life, his essence. He pours it all out. He leaves nothing back. He pours it all out onto both of his sons. And it says that after not many days, as soon as he got an opportunity to do so, the youngest son got out from underneath his father's authority and he went out and he went to a far city. And get this, the father allowed him to do so. The father didn't chain him to the farm and beat him into submission you must love me you must serve me you must stay here instead the father allowed him to go now did the father want him to go did the father help the preacher preach did the father want him to go no. no absolutely not but the father understood that true relationship doesn't come out of have to's but instead it comes out of want to's and so the father allowed the younger son to go, even though it broke his heart. And it says that there in this far country, the younger son wasted his possessions with prodigal living. He blew the lot. And then, then there arose a famine in the land. And this younger son, he began to be in want. He needed a, shelter, so a roof over his head and some food in his belly. So he went and he joined himself to, he clung to, he glued himself to a citizen of that country who just so happened to give him the job of slopping the pigs. Now, Jesus is preaching or teaching a predominantly Jewish audience. And Jewish people have some fairly defined parameters around what is acceptable and unacceptable to eat. And pigs would definitely be in the unacceptable category to eat. No Jewish person was eating bacon. In fact, though their law didn't just prohibit the eating of pigs, the Talmud part of their law also prohibited the very farming of pigs. And yet here we have this younger son who's participating in the farming of pigs. He's doing something that culturally he knew would be wrong. Culturally he'd been brought up that that was not the right thing to do. Yet he finds himself doing it because he's trying to meet a need in his life for shelter and for food. And really, is that so far from us? sometimes we are so desperate for some affection, we are so starving for some approval, we can be so thirsty for some purpose in our life that we find ourselves doing things and we find ourselves with behaviours that we never imagined that we would be doing before. Yet somehow we find ourselves there because we're trying to meet some need in our life. And it says he even would have eaten the pig food, but no one would allow him to have any. And then Verse 17 says this, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food enough? And here I am perishing with hunger. I want to show you something. Verse 17, we're going to go back. Rewind. I make a bad rewind sound, don't I? (laughs) But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's look at this he came to his senses when he didn't just start reflecting upon his situation and he didn't just start reflecting upon himself but he came to his senses when he started to reflect on his father And what is it that he's reflecting on in regards to his father? He says, how many of my father's hired servants have food enough to eat and I'm here perishing with hunger? Somebody say perishing. You know what? The new King James is good for drama. (laughs) Perishing with hunger. He says, what we need to know is that this is, Jesus is also speaking to an agricultural community. And the way that hired servants worked is that during peak seasonal times, you would go to the market square or you would go to the city square, and hired servants could be employed on a daily basis. And it wasn't actually standard practice to provide a hired servant with a lunch, let alone with a more than enough lunch. If it was standard practice, this younger son who himself was being employed as a hired servant in a pig farm wouldn't have been hungry because he too would have been provided with a more than enough lunch. But instead he's sitting there in a pig farm in the muck and mess of his life and he's reflecting upon the goodness and generosity of his father to provide a more than enough lunch for the temporary help. You see, even in a pig farm, the love and generosity of his father was relentlessly pursuing him. He couldn't shake it off. And so he says to himself, I will arise and I will go to my father. And I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please make me like one of your hired servants. And lots of people point to this part in the story as to when there was a true transformation within that young man that he really changed, that he was truly repentant for all that he had ever done. I'm a lot more pessimistic. I think he was hungry. Anyone else? I don't even think that he fully understood all that he had put the father through, to even be sorry enough for it. But I do think there was a change in him. I think there was a change because instead of just looking to himself to meet his needs, he started looking to his father. And I also see there was a bit of a mindset shift there because he goes in verse 12, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. But in verse 19, he says, make me like one of your hired servants. There was a shift there. There was a change there from a give me mindset to a make me mindset. And church, I believe that when we shift from a give me mindset, give me, give me, give me God, to a make me mindset, make me your child, make me holy, make me set apart. God meets us where we're at. He can work with that. And so he gets up, he starts a long journey back to his father. And I always imagine as he's doing that journey that he's rehearsing his speech in his head, playing out the scenario, because that's what I'd be doing. I wouldn't be left yet, No, I'm going to my father. And it says that while he is still a great way off, the father sees him. You see what you're looking for, church. The father was looking for him. And the father runs out and he has compassion upon him and he hugs him, he, he, he embraces him in a big bear hug. And I love that. I love that because... With all that younger son's journeying, with all his speech preparation, with all his, I will arise and go to my father, how, how close did it get him to his father? It's in verse 20, a great way off. How close do our own efforts, our own works, our own deeds get us to our Father? They get us a great way off. We need to understand that we bring nothing to the table of salvation. The Bible says that all our righteousnesses, some people don't understand that word. Righteousness is right relationship with God. All our own attempts at right relationship with God in and of ourselves are like filthy rags before Him. They get us a great way off. It says the son starts his speech and says, Father, I've sinned before heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And in response, the father puts a ring on his hand, a robe on him, shoes on his feet, restores his position as son. He hardly listens to a word of that speech and that's good because the speech was rubbish. (laughs) The first part was all right. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. That is true, he had. But then he says, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. When was he ever worthy to be called that man's son? If my firstborn writer came up to me and said, Mom, I've been horrible this week. I've been rude. I've been disrespectful. I've I've done everything that I shouldn't have done. And I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. I would say to him, mate, you're not my son because of the things that you do. You're my son because I literally gave birth to you. And church, what we need to understand is that we're not sons and daughters because of the things that we do, because we come to church, because we read our Bible, because we attend a connect group, because we do good works. We're not sons and daughters because of the things that we do. We are sons and daughters of God because we have been born to Him. We are sons and daughters by our birth and not by our worth. And so the Father orders the fatted calf to be killed and he throws this huge party. He wants to celebrate because this this son that was once lost has now been found. This relationship that was once severed and broken has now been reconciled and healed. And it's this beautiful picture of how heaven celebrates when just one person is reconciled to the Father. And that's where we like to end the story because we think that this is a story about a lost Son. But how many sons were there? Two sons. And if I'm to be honest with you, the son that I relate to the most isn't that younger, delinquent, live on the edge, rebellious younger son. It's the boring one. The one no one likes, that's me. Literally, literally a firstborn, literally. Do we have any firstborns like literally in the first? I'm not asking for a confession for older sons right now. Okay, cool. Literally a firstborn. It's the older, judgmental, religious, duty-bound older son. And it says that the older son goes up to the house and he sees that a party is going on. He sees that the father has thrown a party for the younger son and he is ticked off. He is upset and angry because he has faithfully served in the father's house. He has never left the father's house. He's always done the right thing and he's never had a party thrown for him. In his mind's eye, the youngest son was never really lost. He was a jerk. In his understanding, he thinks that the younger son has forfeited the favour of the father but he feels like he has earned the favor of the father. He doesn't understand why the father would be celebrating over this lost son. He doesn't understand the heart of the father. Church, you can grow up in the father's house. You can grow up in church. You may have always done the right thing, but you still don't fully understand the heart of God. And so he, this older son, he refuses to go into the party. Often we call this the parable of the prodigal son. I'm telling you, it's the parable of two prodigal sons because where the younger son was prodigal when it came to his inheritance and he was prodigal when it came to his resources, the older son was just as prodigal, but he was prodigal in his pride. He was prodigal in his judgmentalism. He was prodigal in his self-pity. He refuses to go into the party. He refuses to participate in the celebration. He goes back out to the field and he cuts himself off from the presence of the Father and relationship with the Father. But verse 28 of this passage might be my most favourite of the entire passage, chunk of text, because it says that the Father went out and pleaded with the oldest son in the field. You see, it doesn't matter if you are the younger son, or if you're the older son, if you're the sinner in the crowd, or you're the one who knows the first five books of the Bible off by heart. The search of the Father extends to us all. And when he comes to us, he comes not with a lecture, not with a reprimand, not with a list of all the things that we have ever done wrong, but instead he comes with an embrace. He comes with mercy. He comes before us saying, I'm so glad I found you. I am totally obsessed with this book. And the more I read it, the more I understand that it is the heart of a father that is searching and seeking relationship with us. It's not religion. Religion is us trying to get to God. Christianity is God who came to us. The father ran out to the younger son and the father went out to the field to get the older son. Let me show you this in Hosea chapter 11. This whole book is about relationship. It says, Hosea 11, When Israel was only a child, I loved him. I called out my son. He he doesn't call us a minion. Hey, slave. He calls us sons and daughters. I called him out of Egypt, out of that place of bondage. But when others called him, he ran off and left me. He worshipped the popular sex gods. He played at religion with toy gods. Still, I stuck with him. I led Ephraim. I rescued him from human bondage. But he never acknowledged my help. He never admitted that I was the one pulling his wagon, that I lifted him like a baby to my cheek, that I bent down to feed him. Now he wants to go back to Egypt. That's his old way of bondage. Or he wants to go to Assyria, try some new way of bondage. He wants to do anything but return to me. That's why his cities are unsafe and the murder rate skyrockets and every plan to improve things falls to pieces. You know, some of you, you are trying to improve things in your life. You're trying to improve the pig pen of your life, but every attempt, it just falls to pieces. My people are hell bent on leaving me, but how can I give up on you? How can I turn you loose? How can I leave you to be ruined? I can't even bear to think such thoughts. Instead, my insides churn in protest. Church, he desires relationship with us. And if I could have every eye closed just for a moment of reflection. I wanna ask you today a very important question. Because some of you as I've been telling this story, you see yourself in the story. You see yourself as the younger son. You've walked away from the things of God. You've walked away from God. You've tried to do life on your own and you know you have made a mess of it. The Bible says that when he came to his senses, he started reflecting on his father. You may be the younger son and you know that you are not in right relationship with the father. Or maybe, maybe you're more like the older son. You may have even grown up in church. Maybe you've led a really good life, but you know that you do not have real, genuine relationship and connection with our Heavenly Father. I wanna tell you today, it doesn't matter which group you're in, the Father meets us where we're at. And, And in His mercy, He sent someone to take our place for us, and that person is Jesus Christ. We bring absolutely nothing to the table of salvation. We just need to accept what he has done. And so if that is you today, and you will know because your heart's racing now, I'm going to ask you in a minute to raise your hand and say, you know what, I need to be in right relationship with the Father. Would you please pray with me? I'm going to count to three, and then I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, if that's you today. One, two, three. If that's you, wonderful, hands being raised. Is there anybody else that you're like, that is me? I am that younger son, or I am that older son, and I know I need to be made right with God. I need to be connected with God. I've tried to do things on my own but I know that I can't. I know I need His mercy and His grace. Is there anybody else today? Okay, still with eyes closed, we're going to pray because someone today has just made the best decision of their life. And we're a family here. We do things as a family. Is that right? so I'm going to pray I'm going to get you guys to repeat after me and this is a prayer that we don't just pray with our, our mouth although that's awesome we need to believe in our heart too as we pray this so dear heavenly father we thank you for your mercy we thank you that you took our place on the cross today Lord we turn from our old way and we turn to you we thank you for everything. Today is the rest of our life. And everybody said? Amen. 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 Guys, can you stand to your feet for me? For that person that raised your hand, I would love it if you could come forward. We will, um, I will pray with you. I'll meet with you at the front. We're going to walk you through it. Was it good? Good. You're not going to tell me it's bad. So, okay, thank you guys. Thanks for joining us today at See Through Hobart online. If you were impacted by this message or you'd like to know a bit more about our church and what we do, you can get in touch with us via our website, see3hobart.org.au. See you next time.